Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. With me, as always, is Mark. I'm the dog. He's the duck. And uh, it keeps getting better and better. The dogs and ducks continue to steamroll whoever comes in front of them. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Fame off uh, a Hall of Fame defensive back turned coach or a former duck turned cal coach. It's all going down this this year for the dogs and the ducks, and we are here for it. But Mark, before we get into it, uh, we've talked about this a little bit on your show, but on the show before, but tell us, give us a little bit of an update on what's going on with Mark's moments, maybe some of the stuff that you're putting out uh, over the last few days. And then I want to touch base on one such article that you posted that's gaining a lot of uh, critical attention. Yeah. So uh, I've, I'm right now I'm trying to post three times a week uh, some Pac-12 related content. So Monday mornings, I'm posting a Pac-12 recap of the weekend. Wrote a lot this week, as you might expect, about Oregon's win over Colorado, but it won't always be Oregon centric. I'll, I'll be writing primarily about whatever the biggest game of the weekend is. Uh, Wednesdays, I, uh, publish a, uh, top 10 list of some kind, uh, from right now I'm going through the different positions in PAC 12, PAC 10 history. So I've done quarterbacks, I did offensive line this past week. I did running backs. Those then I post those on Wednesday on my blog. They get reposted on Sunday, uh, by super West sports. And we'll come back to that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then now on Fridays, I've started a series where I'm doing kind of a retrospective on each of Oregon's rivalries, since this is the last year for a long time that they're going to be playing some of these. So I did a post this past Friday on their history of their rivalry with Colorado, which goes back well before Colorado joined the Pac-12 conference. This coming Friday, I'll do something on Oregon's rivalry with Stanford, which is a long and tortured history for both teams. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, doing a lot of writing, Warren, but but tonight uh, that's that's taken on a new form. Yeah, and you know I, I love it because I think this is a, a year worth remembering, and you are laboring to help chronicle and celebrate uh, all that the Pac eight, Pac ten, and Pac twelve has meant to longtime fans like you and me. And uh, I loved the idea that you had to. Uh, week by week, create some different top 10 lists. And you created a top 10 quarterbacks list that I was pretty furious with you about. And uh, then you created a top 10 offensive line list. And uh, I felt pretty good about that. And then um, you just recently posted this top 10 list of uh, all-time Pac-12 running backs. And uh, certainly there are a lot of incredible running backs who deserve to be on a top 10 list, but there's only 10 spots. Mark, it seems like no matter what the fan base, everybody's pretty pissed with what you put together. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it, it should <laughs> be noted, I when I did my offensive line list, I left off. Uh, Sam Baker, who is an offensive tackle for USC, who was a three-time All-American. And I knowingly left him off. Like, I did the math, and I was like, I've got four tackles that I feel good about. I'm leaving off a three-time All-American. 
Nobody responded. Nobody even probably knows who Sam Baker is other than a handful of offensive line aficionados. But you publish a list of 10 running backs and you are immediately going to hear about the 10 running backs that should have made the list. And nobody's wrong. No, nobody is wrong in the conversation. There's there's absolutely 20 to 25 names. They're all equally deserving in my view, you know, Um, but uh Here's what's interesting, Warren. So Super West Sports posted uh, posted a link on Sunday and basically just said, hey, we've got our uh, our Mark Schmore. He wrote a top 10 list about running backs, but they didn't include anybody from the list. And that got 16 likes. OK, then they posted the bottom half of the top 10 list uh, the next day. And that got like 10 likes. Uh, mm-hmm because nobody could see the top five. So they're probably all assuming that their guy is in the top five. So tonight they posted the entire list in its entirety, the top 10 list. And it's uh, thus far, it's, it's now up to 99 likes and uh, it's reached 49,000 people on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it's received 48 comments uh, from people that are furious about this person or that person, you know, comments like this is a horrible list. This list is embarrassing. This list is satire. Uh, and a lot of specific, specific call outs, you know, where is Steven Jackson? Where is Corey Dillon? Where is right. Maurice Jones drew? Napoleon Kaufman. Yeah. 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 Marshawn Lynch, you know, uh, all of whom, by the way, I mentioned th- my articles, as you know, Warren, they're right. very lengthy. They're thorough. Uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not just like, hey, here's one sentence about the guy I chose. I'm like, here is four paragraphs about the guys I didn't choose that went to the same school as the guy that I chose. Right. But nobody's right. actually n- nobody who's commenting on Twitter has actually yeah. read that article. So, you know, you have duck fans that are furious that I left out Royce Freeman, and one of them says, No Royce Freeman, he will literally always be the all-time leading rusher in the pack. Well, <laughs> which is a this great is argument true. Royce Freeman had a fantastic career I'm an Oregon fan I love Royce Freeman I have LaMichael James in there and in my paragraph on LaMichael James I then wrote a paragraph just about Royce Freeman and how deserving Royce Freeman was so to me it's not like I'm like making this top 10 list at the exclusion of everybody else it's a right. much more like inclusive exercise that's not how Twitter works though Warren oh <laughs> absolutely and, you know, it's hilarious because I know you reached out to me as kind of a, a an ambassador for the dogs and just one man, of course, who represents a multitude of opinions. But uh, I, I, you know, fall into the category that if you take the depth and the width and the breadth of every Husky running back over the last 100 years, to me, the greatest Husky running back is Miles Gaskin. And I know that there are people that are listening to this podcast right now that all of a sudden have lost respect for me because yeah. they're like, well, what about Corey Dillon? And what about Napoleon Kaufman? You know, so this is what I told you when you asked me what I thought about the question. And I said, without a doubt, the most dominant runner who has ever played for the University of Washington was Corey Dillon. Yeah. He was only there for one season, literally there for one semester. Okay. Yeah. So if the question is who was the most dominant 
runner in the Pac-12 or top 10, then Corey Dillon would be on on that list. Yeah. If you said who is the most electrifying runner for the University of Washington, without a doubt, Napoleon Kaufman. I've got a photo on my shelf right now of me with Napoleon Kaufman as a kid. There was nothing more exciting than watching the ball get handed off to Napoleon Kaufman. Yeah. But the reason why I put Miles Gaskin in that in that position of greatest is yeah. because he was a four-year starter. He always played huge in the biggest games and he left as the leading rusher. He left as one of the top rushers in the Pac-12 uh for a, a career and he was just a guy that came up big whenever you really needed him. So yeah. that's why I put him out there as the greatest Husky running back. If you if you're only going to get one, then that was my suggestion. Now I didn't say you could only put one Husky running back in the list, right. but when you start off a list with three USC Trojans at one, two, and three and don't even include O.J. Simpson on the list, you know. O.J. Simpson was ineligible because he was pack eight. Okay. So, you know, probably the most casual readers don't know. Well, and I mentioned that the very first paragraph. I said this avoids an awkward conversation about O.J. Simpson. But again, right? nobody read it. it, But And and I actually did read it. I just kind of forgot. But um, but the, the point being is that, you know, when people think about the greatest running backs in the pack, obviously their mind goes to their generation and their team and their favorite moments. And they can make a compelling case based on those things. Uh, you're a hundred percent right. And it's like, like I've got a buddy who's a Beaver fan. So I texted him, you know, I said it, Ken Simonton, Steven Jackson, Evanson, Bernard, or Jaquiz Rogers. Who is it? Now, I was thinking Quiz Rogers because he was my favorite of the four. And he immediately texts back Simonton, who is the all-time leading rusher in Oregon State history mm-hmm. and was the best player on the best team in Oregon State history. Right. Which count for something, right? And so I put Simonton on the list, and there was all kinds of Twitter responses saying, where is Steven Jackson? And so I text right. my buddy, the Beaver fan, saying, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot of heat. And he said, yeah, it's pretty messed up. You didn't have Steven Jackson on the list. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, you were the one who, you were the one who led me down the Ken Simonton pathway. Uh, right. But it, it's all a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, and as I was trying to put together the list, I was trying to be mindful of like, okay, there's obviously some guys, there's three Heisman Trophy winners. There's multiple Heisman finalists. I even left off a Heisman runner-up in Bryce Love because Stanford alone had three different guys who were Heisman runners-up, and I just kind of was like, at some point, I'm going to pick right. somebody else. And uh, there's no, like, Bryce Love was great, but he's not in the same class as McCaffrey. As Christian McCaffrey came right yeah. after him. His, the team wasn't as good. He got hurt yeah. his senior year, so he kind of had a, a a letdown of a final season. So there's a reason I left Bryce Love off, and I love Bryce Love. He was fantastic. But, you know, I tried to kind of be representative, not just of different schools, but also of different kind of what you're talking about, different ways of measuring greatness. So like the Miles Gaskin, Ken Simonton guys are longevity career, four straight thousand yard season type careers playing Mm -hmm. on great teams. 
And then I, I picked J.J. Arrington from Cal, and some people are probably like, well, why didn't you take Marshawn Lynch? Well, J.J. Arrington ran for 2,000 yards in a season, which is well beyond anything that Marshawn Lynch ever did for Cal. And right. he was on Cal's best team of our lifetime, the 10-win team that finished in the top 10 in the country that Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback of. They took USC down to the wire, had this great season. And J.J. Arrington was a huge part of that. So I wanted to kind of highlight at least one of these guys that just had like the one magical season could have been Corey Dillon. It -hmm. could have been Jonathan Stewart from Oregon. Like there's different guys that fall into that category of like, man, if you got them for one great year, I thought JJ Arrington made sense. And I'm sure there are some Cal fans that are like, yeah, JJ Arrington was awesome. But then there's a lot of other people that are like, how do you have JJ Arrington and you don't have X, Y, or Z. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, you know, that's, that's what makes this fun. I mean, that's why we do this show, right? It's, it's because these kind of conversations as meaningless as they are in the grand scheme of things, they evoke a lot of passion within us. And, uh, and we all feel deeply about these things because, uh, we love our sports and we love our teams and, and uh, that's that's what the dog and duck show is all about. So, thanks for letting us dig into that. We'll what's what's on the, the on tap for next week? What what will be your top ten list next week? Well, I'm trying to space out kind of the ones that are going to be the most conversational. So I've right. I've got top, I've got tight ends coming up next, which okay. I don't think there's going to be a lot of like hot takes on like. Is it Austin Safarian Jenkins or is it Mercedes Lewis as the best tight end from the Pac-12? You know, right. Um, spoiler alert: those two guys are going to be battling it out. Uh, but uh, I don't. I don't think that one's going to draw nearly the visceral reaction. But then the next week is wide receivers, and I'm going to say right now, Warren, you could pretty much do the top ten wide receivers from USC and make a pretty complete list. So it's going to be really hard to figure out how to justifiably get a few other guys in there and not make it entirely Trojans. Um, I mean, there's a couple others, you know, Washington actually has got a couple of good candidates, but uh, that's, that's going to be an interesting one. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I think uh, I would hope that university of Washington, which has been as close to a tight end university in the pack, history as USC has been RBU I would hope that they have more than just one guy on the list who would we'll be the have to see guy. is it is it like Bruner Mark Bruner is it uh yeah I mean I think you've got Mark Bruner you've got uh Cam Cleland um you know there's there's a there's a handful of guys that were you know really successful and you know that you can't just look at their stats because the the game has changed dramatically since some of those guys played. hundred percent. Yeah. By far, by far, Mark Bruner was the best tight end in the pack uh, for his era that that he played in. Uh, yeah, and the I mean the fact that I mentioned his name right offhand tells you that I've been looking at him. Um, but it, it's so hard, Warren. Like, I think it's hardest with tight ends to to judge the statistics of the different areas because somebody like Cam Cleland, who in his best season had 350 receiving yards, 
yeah going up against guys that regularly are getting 500 600 yards in a season and it's like well how do you measure what cam cleland meant 25 years ago to what the best so i do i do think i'm going to try to be honest about the bias it's probably going to veer towards um the guys that have put up better statistical resumes in the last say two decades but I'm going to try to figure out how to at least shine a spotlight on some of the guys from the previous era that were just playing in a different game and, you know, and a game that demanded a lot more of them as unselfish blockers and did, you know, teams weren't putting their tight end in the slot and throwing it to them five times a game, like a lot of guys now. So that, Definitely. that... And I know Stanford's got a lot of good guys that fall into that category. So they're, you know, I'm sure they're going to, they're going to rack up the accolades as well, but Hey, let's talk about some uh, other things coming up. But before we do wanted to mention something that I'm really excited about, uh, uh, you know, some of you may know I'm the executive director of an organization for men called impact players that uh, focuses on helping men grow to be better husbands, fathers, and leaders. And uh, really excited to have Jeff Kemp, uh, for former Seattle Seahawk NFL quarterback and uh, a guy who's really contributed to the community here in Seattle quite a bit over the years. He's coming to speak at our Impact Players Breakfast on October 12th. So we had Coach Kalen DeBoer come in May, and then we took a break for the summer. Now we're starting this season with uh, Jeff Kemp. And I just want to invite any guys that are looking to connect with some other dudes. The whole subject is about friendship and it's just going to be an opportunity to eat some great food and connect with some other guys and uh, hear a great NFL quarterback share some insights about friendship and uh, pulling men together for a huddle. So if that's something that you're interested in, go to impactplayers.org and check it out. But, um, Mark, I also got this message from a former teammate of mine uh, at Wingate University where I played college tennis. Uh, My buddy Ryan Partridge just sent this message randomly to me today. He said, and by the way, he's on the East Coast. He said, please tell me you and your squad are doing another podcast for the Ducks versus Huskies game this year. That will end up being the the last PAC championship game at the end of the season, Penix Jr. versus Bodacious. So, uh, Mark, the the anticipation is already heating up, and yeah. uh, we we know that unless uh, either one of our teams has a major stumble, uh, both are going to be headed into uh, a bye week and then preparation for uh, you know really the biggest game on the calendar we'll see what happens what transpires after that but no doubt this will be the biggest game in the pac-12 of the year unless something changes yeah i mean i i um first of all regarding the squad i mean i I do think we're going to have a couple members of the squad that are going to be in town and available to record something that friday before uh before the game so we're definitely gonna have to figure that out uh yeah i mean it i feel like we're 
we're we're not too soon now to talk about it. It's kind of like, I mean, let's be honest. Oregon and Washington are both heavy favorites coming into this week. And then we've got to buy. And so it's only natural to just start to kind of look around the corner and say, this game is coming up. They're both going to be undefeated. They're both going to be ranked in the top 10 if all goes according to plan. Hopefully with all, you know, key players healthy. And that has never happened in the history of this rivalry. Like we've never Mm -hmm. had two undefeated top 10 teams going up against one another. So uh, yeah, I think if it's, if it's not the, if it's certainly going to be the biggest game in the pac 12 until the winner plays in a bigger game, which, you know, could be down the road against USC or somebody like, you know, um, right. Right. It's, it's on it's on the short but I, list. I think like let's let's just say Washington beats Oregon and then four weeks later goes in as an undefeated team to play against an undefeated USC. Um you know, yeah, it does make sense that eight and oh versus eight and oh would be bigger than you know five and oh versus five and oh, but because of what this rivalry means, right because of the hatred between these two schools, I still don't think it's going to be a bigger game. Well, and there's a good chance that both that later in the season, we're less likely to have two undefeated teams, right? Exactly. Like, so, so like this could be the only one that really has those kind of stakes. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I'm starting to think these might just be the two best teams. I didn't necessarily think Oregon was in, at that level uh a couple weeks ago but now i'm yeah. starting to think well maybe i i have thought washington was one of those two teams but now i'm i'm growing in confidence about oregon but a, a lot of that depends on how much stock to put in this win over colorado which i'm sure we're going to talk about well let's get into it because you know you want to talk about all-time hyped games and on a national perspective this game may have been the most hyped college football game during the regular season in years, in spite of the fact that Oregon came into the game as a 21 point favorite, the fact that Oregon defeated Colorado 42 six is really not a surprise to anybody that knows anything about football. Right. But uh, yet it still was a game that everybody was talking about because of primetime Deion Sanders and what he has, what attention he has brought to the university, to the University of Colorado this year. Yeah, to put it in perspective, Oregon has had two regular season games: uh, a season opener against LSU back in I think it was 2011, and then their uh, game at Ohio State a couple of years ago. Both of those games drew between seven and a half and eight million viewers, and those were the two highest rated regular season games that Oregon had ever participated in. And this game against Colorado averaged 10 million viewers. And it was a 42 to nothing game at one point. It I think it peaked at 12 million viewers. And then uh, a couple million turned the game off at some point uh, as they yeah. lost interest. But so this, yeah, this was the most viewed regular season game. But like the most viewed game that has ever taken place at Autzen Stadium by far. And it was a... Uh, you know, a 40 point blowout basically that um, wasn't competitive at all. 
and is far from the biggest game that Oregon has been involved in. Like, it's not even the, you know, like we said, it's not even the biggest game they're going to be involved in this year, but, but it is the most watched for sure. And, you know, we talked about this last week that you had the coach who is the king of hype versus the team that has been the king of hype. And yeah. yet what is so ironic, and I know, you know, you're, you're planning on bringing this up, but like coach Lanning really pulled the, we're the gritty yeah, blue collar meat and potatoes team. And yeah. they're the, they're the flash and no substance team. Yeah. Like he really sold that to his players before the game. Not only did he sell that Warren, but he, invited the ESPN cameras in to see him sell that. And so as he's giving the speech, they're about clicks. You know, they're chasing clicks. We're chasing wins. This game isn't going to be played in Hollywood. It's going to be played on the grass. So he's kind of framing it as they are the team that is just about exposure and wants to be in front of the cameras. And that's not us. But he invited the cameras in to see that. Right. Because he's shrewd and he realizes 10 million people are watching. And so it was, to me, what it was, Warren, is it was landing out Dion, Dion. Is it was landing understood mm-hmm. moment. He understood, I'm going to invite ESPN for the pregame speech. I'm going to give a couple great lines that blow up on Twitter. I'm going to give a halftime interview that gives a great line that's also going to blow up on, tri- uh, on Twitter. I'm going to come in to the post-game presser and I'm going to have a bodacious t-shirt on and I'm going to say, quote, Bo Nix is the best quarterback in the nation so that that can then be retweeted out and get that out Mm -hmm. there. But also then I'm going to walk it all back and I'm going to talk about the need to kind of humble myself and the need for our team to just kind of realize that this is just one game and I'm going to be overly complimentary of Dion and the role that he's played. I thought it was, it was kind of, it was kind of brilliant the whole weekend of just kind of landing out Dioning Dion. And Mm -hmm. I saw, I saw on Twitter, some Husky fan, and I don't think this was meant as a compliment, but he said, one thing I will say is Oregon found the perfect coach to be the coach of Oregon. And I think (laughs) it was supposed to be a dig, but I actually am looking at that and I'm like, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Um, so I I I love the whole thing. I don't think that's going to be Lanning's mo the rest of the season because he's not playing Dion again. But I think in mm-hmm. this particular case, uh, there was some kind of extra motivation in there to to send a certain message. Well, I mean, this is a guy that's got one of the more bizarre tattoos that you'll <laughs> ever see on a coach, <laughs> and. After their recruiting class ended, the the gif of him smoking a cigar, right, right, blowing the smoke out of his nostrils, uh, or whatever he did, you yeah. know, like he's definitely a guy that does enjoy talking smack, being kind of the villain, being willing to. Um, say some things that are outrageous for the camera. I mean, like, it's not like this was out of character for him. 
No, not entirely, but it's but it's also not like who he is all the time. It it's kind of like he has these moments that kind of come out once in a while, and you're kind of like, oh, that, oh, okay. Uh, so like, um, Andy Staples, college football writer who who was a walk on for the Florida Gators national title team under Steve Spurrier, he actually said he said uh, that Lanning reminds him of Spurrier a little bit in that he has mm-hmm. a twinkle in his eye when he's saying some of these things that it's kind yeah. of, he'll put a dig in, but there's a little bit of a smirk to it and a little bit of a sense. So, you know, he, he responded to something that skip skip Bayless went after Lanning uh, on one of his shows. And so a reporter read back to Lanning what skip Bayless said and Lanning's response was great. He said, I don't know, skip. I've never had a conversation with him but I've watched him enough to know how much he gets it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just, it was a great yeah. way of just kind of bypassing the whole thing. So um, I, yeah, I think he, he owned the moment this weekend. I think it remains to be seen, you know, how he navigates the rest of the season and, and the opportunities that come with that, because if they, if they lay an egg against Washington, he's going to look the way Dion looked after this game. Well, I can't imagine that the score would be anywhere close to that, but let's talk about it because it was an absolute domination. You know, we we were all keeping an eye on the score and it just kept exploding, exploding, exploding. Um, the, the thing that we talked about going into the game was the fact that uh, Colorado does not have an offensive or defensive line to speak of. And that seemed to be the number one reason why they had no chance whatsoever in this game. Yeah, it was it was a domination at the line of scrimmage, which was expected. Uh, what was unexpected to me, Warren, it, if you told me going into the game, uh, Oregon is going to score on six of their first seven possessions and have 42 points by the mid, midway point of the third quarter, that wouldn't really have shocked me. Uh, what shocked me... And and if you told me that uh, Oregon was going to end up sacking Shadur Sanders seven times, which is what they did, that wouldn't even really have shocked me because Colorado has been so bad protecting the quarterback this year, and Oregon seems to have a much improved pass rush. Uh, but what did shock me is that when Shadur Sanders actually did have time, he was completely unable to hook up with with the receiver down the field. Now, obviously, he was missing one of his best receivers in Travis Hunter, so one would think that that had an impact on it. But Colorado still has a couple other guys that have been pretty good for them during the first three games mm-hmm. of the season, you know, have had 100-yard games and things like that. And based on what we've seen from Oregon's past defense over the past year, I just figured Colorado would would connect on a few shots and that this would be, you know, if Oregon scored 49 points, Colorado would probably get 21 or something like that. Yeah. And so it was it was the utter domination on the defensive side. Colorado had 39 yards of total offense in the first two and a half quarters. 39 yards of offense. Mm-hmm. And the sacks were a big component of that, but, the, but there was also, like I saw one stat of uh, Shitter Sanders was 0 for 6 on passes beyond 20 yards, which is kind of their bread and butter. They love mm-hmm. the deep shot. And there were several times where he throws a bomb and Oregon's got a guy running man for man 
and making a deflection and not interfering, which is what they did against Texas Tech on those deep shots. Yeah. And I think if you're an Oregon fan looking for reasons to be hopeful about this game in particular and what it means for the rest of Oregon's season, I think that's the takeaway, is that this team in coverage on deep receivers has been much more reliable through the first month of this season than they were through the whole of last season. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the story is going to be same the same for both of our squads. We're not going to really know how good either one of us are until we face each other. Um, 100%. So yeah. we've, we've done what we're supposed to do. Colorado was not, you know, the number 19 team in the country. And I think at the end of the season, that will be obvious. Michigan State wasn't, you know, uh, a real contender uh, in in their conference. So we'll see what Boise State does by the end of the year. But point being, we're, we're not going to really know how good either one of our squads are until we face each other. Um, and so let's let's go ahead, unless there's something really pressing from this game you want to continue, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, this Husky win because, again, very similar. You know, I know Oregon really felt like this was a complete win. Same thing for the Huskies. Most complete win, and I would really say first half uh, since they – you know, put up 70 points against Oregon in 2016. The defense had three interceptions. Uh, they had a, a pick six. Special teams, punt return, touchdown by Roma Dunze for 83 yards. Um, took care of business with the kicking game. And then the running game showed up again for the second week in a row. Nearly 150 yards rushing between Dylan Johnson and Will Nixon two rushing touchdowns. And then of course you've got Michael Penix and the aerial attack, which Penix didn't even touch the ball until midway through the first quarter. And they had a 14 zero lead at that point. And it was obvious that Cal's strategy in the first half was to invite the university of Washington to, to run the ball, not pass it. Uh, In spite of that, Penix still finished with over 300 yards passing four touchdowns through the air um, in really the equivalent of two quarters of a game. Uh, And so nothing is slowing down Michael Penix Jr. He is now the betting favorite to win the Heisman Trophy this year. Uh, Washington comes out of that game winning 59 to 32 after uh, being up 52 to 12 midway through the third quarter. Um, they they come away with their first number one ranking vote since the 1990s. And uh, it's, it's an exciting. Right? Yeah. 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 So um, wow. I mean, that's, that's a long time yeah. to, to just get a single number one vote. So but, the so the 2016 year when they went to the playoff and the 2000 season with Tuiasasopo, they didn't even they didn't even get a number one vote. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you remember 2016, um, the real question Alabama was just consensus. Yeah, 
Alabama, you know, Clemson, Ohio State. And the real question was, does Washington belong in the playoffs? Yeah. And number four of those. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that I don't think that they were clearly number. Well, yeah, they were clearly the fourth best team of those four, but there was a lot of argument as to whether or not they were number four or five or six. Right. right. Yeah. 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 In that, in that year. So, you know, and that came off of a 2015 where the Huskies had, um, you know, barely made it to a bowl game after, you know, kind of going on a winning streak to end the season. And then the Tuiasa Sopo year, year, you know, that is going back in time, but that year was a year marked by a number of miraculous fourth quarter finishes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, that probably like the, the lack of domination was probably what prevented them from getting any, any number one votes. Um, so, you know, everybody's talking about this Washington offense and, and, and I was just kind of thinking, and I was having a conversation actually about this with Mark, with, uh, with Mike Martin the other day. And, uh, you know, all the great Husky squads have had some, some great names, whether it's, you know, purple rain, uh, purple haze, the death row defense. So I was trying to think of a name for this Washington offense. Uh, just going to try this on for size. I like this. I like see, this. Yeah, let's do this. See what see what you think about this. But, you know, like I said, we've got the purple haze, and that's kind of that, that dominant Husky defense. But this team is all about the offense. So my submission for the the name for this Husky squad is the Purple Blaze because anytime Penix gets on the field, you know there's going to be fire. And uh, and so, you know, mm-hmm. I just I did mm-hmm. a Google search for Purple Blaze, got an image of a purple fire, and I just thought, yeah, that – that resonates with me, but Mark, as a non-Husky fan, what are your what are your thoughts about that? I I think you need to workshop this a little bit more, Warren. I th- I think we need to come in. We we need to use the buy to really workshop a few different options because I I think Purple Blaze is it's getting the gears rolling, but I'm not sure that's where we want to land with this. So I think okay. I think, I think this team needs an offense worthy of 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 the performance and. Uh, Maybe maybe we circle back and land on Purple Blaze, but I, I think we need to try a few different a few different names on. Okay. All right. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and yes. you have a suggestion for what this Husky team should be named, then uh, reach out to the at Dog and Duck Show podcast and uh, and let us know what you think the Husky football team should be nicknamed in 2023 uh, a couple of real quick notes uh the huskies did add a couple of recruits over the last couple of days uh four-star texas defensive back uh josh lair who projects to be either a big corner or a safety and a three-star tackle from uh, clovis high school in california uh david boyajan I'm probably getting that wrong, but uh six foot six, 305 pound tackle. Uh, so a couple of recruits coming in, maybe 
a little bit of that momentum from the game on Saturday where we had a number of recruits present. But, Mark, let's talk about what's coming up this weekend. Give me a little bit of some of the some of the 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 storylines going into this game against a completely overmatched Stanford game Stanford team. Yeah, I mean coming between the Colorado game and then having the Husky game on the other side of it in 2 weeks to get excited about that. This game really is just kind of a cooler Jets game. Oregon uh they open as a 27 point favorite. Uh Stanford is off to a one and three start. They they beat Hawaii in their season opener, and then they have losses to Sacramento State, USC, and Arizona. Now, I will say in their defense, they lost that Sacramento State game on just a bananas play in the final minute of that game, and they lost to Arizona by a single point. So this is a team that is like they're a couple plays away from being three and one, which would sound a whole lot better than one and three. But that the the one loss that is um, sticks out is that loss to USC, where I think they were down by forty points at the half, just totally non competitive, and and that's why they're such a sizable underdog. So uh, they don't really seem to have a clear identity yet in the Troy Taylor era. They're rotating two different quarterbacks. Um, their defense has been pretty leaky thus far. So there's there's not a lot on paper to suggest that Stanford is is going to make this a competitive game. And yet the last time Oregon went to Stanford, Oregon was a top five team. Uh, Stanford was in the midst of a three and nine season and Stanford beat Oregon in overtime. And that's one of several games I could list off for you in which Stanford has ruined Oregon seasons. So I don't take anything for granted with Stanford, even his 27-point favorites. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it would be utter devastation if Oregon lost this game, though. Oh, oh yeah. It, it would be, yeah, utter devastation. I mean, would it be the greatest upset in that history? Um, yeah. Great, greatest upset, like most surprising. Yes, it would be. And because that 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 game two years ago was weird. One for one thing, Oregon had a, that was the Anthony Brown era. So you never felt totally confident in Oregon's offense to just put a team away like they mm-hmm. were constantly having to pull games out in the fourth quarter. Um, the other thing is their offensive coordinator, Joe Moorhead, got taken to the hospital the morning of the game. And so then they had mm-hmm. their offensive line coach was like calling plays for the first time ever. Like, so there was some yeah. like mass chaos going on on the Oregon side. And then that was also a game where I think Kayvon Thibodeau got kicked out of the game for a targeting penalty. And then there were like three different penalties on Stanford's final drive that were such bad calls that I had a Husky call me up and say, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Oregon got screwed. <laughs> like, so there's yeah. so much about that game that was weird and like, yeah in hindsight makes a little bit of sense of why it unfolded the way that it did. It's really hard to envision a scenario where this year's Stanford team beats this year's Oregon team in this particular setting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, you know, the Huskies kind of a similar story. They are going on the road in Arizona 
in September, which is always a scary feeling, but it is a night game. So the heat shouldn't be uh, a real concern, but going up against an Arizona Wildcats team that really pushed us to the limit last year with Jaden DeLora um, going toe to toe with Michael Penix for almost the entire game. Both teams rolled up over 500 yards offense last year. Uh, Penix threw for 516 yards, which, which was a, a school record at the time, uh, but the dogs won 49 to 39. This year feels a lot different though. Last year we were reeling after losing to UCLA and Arizona state. And the question was, are we going to have to have a massive shootout every single week to win this year? The defense is uh, healthy or reasonably healthy. Jabbar Muhammad appears to be the closest thing we've had to a lockdown cornerback since the Jimmy Lake heyday. And um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I don't think this Arizona Wildcats team is as good as they were last year. Um, last year, Delora was really on fire. They had a trio of wide receivers that were arguably the best trio of wide receivers in the pack last year. Uh, yeah. But Dorian Singer has gone uh, to USC, uh, McMillan, Totora McMillan, and um, Jacob Cowing have been good, but not as great as they were last year. And there's a question as to whether or not Delora will even be healthy enough to play in yeah. this game on Saturday night. So it feels like this should be a game that the Huskies kind of similar to Cal where you could say, well, look at their track record. They haven't had a very easy time against Cal, but if you compare it to what they've been able to do this year, you go, okay, this should be a pretty easy win. And I think that's going to be the case again. I, I agree with you. I would certainly, I would pick the Huskies to cover whatever the spread was. Uh, I don't have any reason to doubt the Huskies. I think if, if I were making an argument for Arizona, not, not even just against the Huskies, but if I were making the argument that Arizona is going to pull an upset against one of the conference heavyweights this year, you know, how is it going to happen? Uh, I would say, well, it's probably going to be in Tucson and it's probably going to be a night game just because things get weird in Pac-12 after dark. Yeah, uh, I would say it it's pretty essential that Jaden Delora plays at the level that he did last year, which you're right, we haven't really seen this year. He does still have two of those three receivers. So I think there's still like some hidden potential that they could have a breakout game. Sounds like if he's not going to play, that it's a true freshman, Noah Fafita, who came in mm -hmm. and led the game-winning drive against Stanford, completed every pass that he threw coming into that situation, so good on him. Uh, I think they're much less formidable if they're starting a freshman in his first collegiate start than if yeah. they're starting Jaden Delora. But I think Jaden Delora is a good enough quarterback that at least you have to you have to stop them. Like, you know, like the, he can at least lead a drive down the field and, and has a couple weapons. I think the other interesting thing about this year's Arizona team compared to last year, I do think they're a lot better on defense. They're mm. giving up just 16 points per game. 
this year. The most points they've given up was a Mississippi State. That was an overtime game. They gave up 24 in regulation in that game. And that was a game where the offense turned it over like the first four times they had the ball. They just handed it to Mississippi State and gave them great field position. So, uh, like, their defense has been has been pretty good, granted, against lesser opponents. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowhere near the cape of the, the the type of team that they're going to play in Washington, so I'm trying to kind of talk myself into Arizona making this competitive, uh, yeah. and I'm not I'm not sure that I could do it. Uh, maybe maybe they could take a team like Utah with the backup quarterback down to the wire. Maybe they mm-hmm. could with Oregon State or 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 um, you know Washington State on the right day, but uh, it's it's hard for me to envision them giving the Huskies too much of a test. Yeah, I don't think anybody is expecting this to be, you know, a, a close game in the fourth quarter. Thus far, um, Michael Penix Jr. has really not played any meaningful minutes into the fourth quarter uh, in the season. I would anticipate that's going to be the case against Oregon. But I will not be surprised at all if if it's thirty five to seven at halftime against Arizona. What what I would take as a hopeful sign, if I'm an Oregon fan scouting this game, is I don't care what the final score is. I'd like to see Arizona put together two real touchdown drives in the first half because if you look against the starters, yeah. Pretty much all of Washington's points that they've given up have come in garbage time. You know, this yeah. last week against Cal, it was what forty-five to twelve at halftime or whatever, and Cal right. ended up scoring in the thirties. But that's because they added three touchdowns when the game was already decided. The Michigan State game, they didn't give up a touchdown till late. Right. So, like, if if I'm an Oregon fan, what I would like to see is can a functional offense move the ball against the Washington defense when they're general when they're really trying their hardest mm-hmm. and if i could see that if i could see two like real solid drives not like they take over after a turnover and have a 30 yard drive but like where they have to drive right. 70 yards that would at least give me some sense that okay you know there's there's something there that that oregon could work with but i think if it turns into the game that you're talking about if it's 35 7 mm-hmm. halftime it's it's hard to draw much from that to give to give you much in the way of optimism about playing Washington. No, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not by no means am I saying this is the 91 Husky defense. Um, you know, they're 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 better than they were last year. And but I think they've they've been able to really put a lot of pressure on the quarterbacks, even though they haven't gotten as many sacks as we would like. They they had 22 quarterback pressures against Cal, and that forced three interceptions. Yeah. That forced Cal to have a lot of errant throws. I think the quarterbacks against the University of Washington in in you know starter minutes are averaging less than 50% completion percentage. So you know, they're really forcing teams to make bad throws, to get rid of the ball prematurely, to not be able to get through their reads. And that's making the secondary all the stronger. Yeah. Um, and and 
And then Tuli Latula Gasanoa, um, Javon Parker, who like he and his brother were nobodies from Michigan that had zero recruits. And as a, you know, a second year player is coming in with one of the highest graded PFF interior defensive players in the nation this week. Um, So some really, really encouraging signs for the defense and uh, if they can keep that going, headed into Pac-12 play, it's going to be a, a tough road to hoe for any team that comes against them. Would you would you say it's fair to say if if Jaden Delora plays, which is still a big maybe, is this the best quarterback that the Huskies have faced this year? I would say so. Um, I don't think that um, he's played particularly great this year, but based on his resume. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 trying to compare his stats to like Noah Kim of Michigan State or Taylor Green of Boise, and I mean, it yeah, it seems pretty clear to me that Delora is more competent, at least. Um, yeah, but you're also right that he is not he has not played as well this year as really he did the last two years. So. Um, it's interesting because going into the season, I thought Delora was a better quarterback than Cam Ward. But right now, Cam Ward is arguably the third best quarterback in the Pac-12. And maybe Uh, it's not even uh, that much of an argument. Well, so who are you dropping out? You're dropping out my man, my man, Bo? I am. Yeah, I mean. Come on. Look! Look at look at what they've done. I mean, I know you okay. love. Bo. Wait, no, we got to do timeout. Timeout. Let's finish the Jaden Delore conversation <laughs> and then the Cam Ward. Just one one point about Jaden Delore for okay. our listeners. His completion percentage this year, and it's been an off year for him. We're both admitting that. Yeah, he's still completing roughly seventy percent of his passes. Michigan yeah. State's guy Noah Kim was is at fifty seven percent. Boise's guy Taylor Green is at fifty three percent. I don't even see a Cal guy on here i haven't come across one of them yet so again should be a more functional offense i'm not saying it's an offense that's going to go up and down the field against the huskies but i think it'll be a more telling test for the washington defense than than what they've had before that's the final point i wanted to make there now i'm happy to engage in in cam ward conversation well i mean you tell me like look at what cam ward did just this past week. I mean, uh, he completed 28 of 34 attempts for 404 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, upset the number 14 team in the nation, 82% completion percentage, nine rushes for 14 yards and a touchdown. I mean, he's, according to PFF, he had the third best quarterback grade in the country and the fourth best passing grade uh in the country i mean so you know it's not a stretch to say that he's a top three quarterback in the pac-12 right now so of of michael okay we're first of all first of all we're removing shador sanders from this conversation get him out of here very much in this conversation a week ago (laughs) 
And statistics. Shador, shut the door, Sanders. He's still the second leading passer in the nation in terms of yardage. And that's after having an abysmal performance against the Ducks. Tells you how good he was in the first three games. But okay, so Penix Ward, uh, Caleb, and Bo. Who do you think has the lowest completion percentage of those four? Yeah. Um I don't know. I don't have those stats in front of me. That, that's but, why I'm asking. I want you to just guess here. But I mean, I know that um, you know, Bo doesn't really ever pass the ball more than 10 yards down the field. So it's not gonna be Bo. It's gonna be probably a, a more uh down the field passer. So it could potentially be Penix. No, it's it's actually Caleb. Caleb Williams. But okay. pretty much Caleb Williams, Michael Penix, and Cam Ward are all like within a couple percent. They're they're all okay. around seventy four percent, and Bonix is up at like seventy nine percent. Right. Uh, it, but who is the only one of those four to throw multiple interceptions? Well, uh, Penix has two interceptions for the season. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Combined, Cam Ward, Caleb Williams, and Bonix combined. Right. Have- yeah, and that was Bo Nix against Colorado. So, I, it's hard for me to make the case that Nix is the odd man out when he has the highest completion percentage, and he's thrown half as many interceptions as as Michael Penix. I mean, it's have you have you seen the passing chart for Bo Nix? Like, does it does he ever throw the ball more than twenty yards down the field? Well, you know, you know, Warren, I love this argument that you're making because this is the argument I've made for Patrick Mahomes being a better quarterback than Tom Brady. Tom Brady loves the check down to the running back. Yeah. He loves he loves taking seven yards when that's what the defense gives him. And I have long maintained that that meant Brady was not the GOAT, although Joe Montana also did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if that's the argument that you're going to use against Bonix, I have I have no choice but to relent because I've used the same argument. So um, yeah, we're putting Bonix in the same category as Tom Brady, the same category as Joe Montana. King let's, of the checkdown, I think I think he'll he'll be happy to take that. Let's let's be honest for just a minute, um, because you obviously watch the Oregon games. I'm watching the Washington games most intensely. Um, but from what I've been able to observe, Bo Nix is not using his feet to the same extent that he was last year. Is that correct? Yeah, he's he had his first rushing touchdown of the year against Colorado. Uh, and uh, last year, I mean, by this point, he had several, several rushing touchdowns. And really, I would say there was like one drive, that 17-play drive against Texas Tech where there were a couple third downs where he just had to do something to kind of, and I think that's the way they're going to use him where it's kind of like it's break in case of emergency and Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be when, when it's needed, they will, they will use it and they will use it effectively. Uh, But it's, it's not necessarily going to be the primary um, move for this offense, especially in these games against overmatched opponents, I think. Yeah. You may see him run a little more, you know, when they play Washington, um, just because it's a way to get yardage against a good defense. But um, I don't know. I, I, I don't I think... disagree with your main contention, which is that Cam Ward has elevated himself into the upper tier. And right. if, if you're having to split hairs amongst these four guys, 
and you want to put Knicks fourth. I think I I think I'm fine with that. Just recognizing that at some point all of these guys are going to play each other, and yeah. we're going to have a little more definitive results. No doubt about it. That's why that's why we play the game. But I think right now in the season, based on what they've done, um, you know, to me, nobody is nobody is throwing the ball better than Michael Penix in the nation, which is why he's, you know, the the leading candidate to win the Heisman Trophy. Um, and Mark, I'm telling you, I was at the game on Saturday night and there was at least a half a dozen times during the game when I looked over to uh, my buddy Nathaniel and I said, I've never seen a Husky quarterback make a throw like that before. Yeah. Like that's, that's what Penix is, Penix is doing right now. Caleb Williams, he's the defending uh, Heisman, you know, trophy winner. I didn't think that he played spectacularly well against Arizona state. He kind of, padded his stats at the end um you know like he added more stats in the fourth quarter in a game where you know Penix would have already been out by that time um and but but cam ward has been a hero for the cougars this year i mean and and i think to me like uh, Bo Nix has done everything that that the Ducks need him to do thus far, but going into the Washington Oregon game last year, if you had said who is really the most overall dynamic quarterback between Penix and Nix last year, like I could have said, I think it may be Nix because of what he was doing with his legs right in addition to his arms his arm but i don't see that happening right now that doesn't mean he can't do it once he gets into the the pac 12 season uh but as of right now i think he's he's playing a much more conservative brand of football and it's working so they don't need to do anything different but i that's why i would drop him below ward yeah, uh, to your point, Penix and Caleb are one and two in the country in touchdown passes. Um, they are tied for first in the country in yards per attempt, which is um, a good indicator of what you're talking about, about kind of downfield passing threat. Penix is first in yardage. Shadur Sanders still is second. Uh, Cam Ward is third. And, uh, you know, Caleb and Nick's are like in the top 20, but they're always down that list. So uh, I don't I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think that uh, one of the things one of the reasons why Penix is having such a spectacular season is because he has maybe the greatest trio of receivers in the history of the game. Uh, (laughs) But I I think that um, part of and and let me just let me just say something about that for a minute right now. Roma Dunze is number two in the nation in passing yardage, and he's on pace for over 1,700 yards receiving. Uh, uh, Jalen McMillan has missed the last six quarters. He's still on pace for over 1,000 yards this season. And then Jalen Polk 
has superseded now Jalen McMillan for uh, the second most yards on the team. He's also on pace for somewhere around 12 to 1400 yards receiving. Uh, so you've got a trio that could potentially put up, you know, over 4,000 yards combined as receivers. If the Huskies play, you know, a 13 game season, which is certainly possible. Yeah. So like, just to put that in perspective for fans of both schools listening here, like, Oregon has a history of really high-powered offenses led by really dominant running backs. Uh, Like, Bucky Irving is a fantastic running back. He's probably not even in the top 10 Oregon running backs in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Troy Franklin is on pace to have the best single-season receiving season in Oregon history. Like, if if he Mm -hmm. continues at his current pace through 12 games, he will set the single-season record for receiving yards. And Troy Franklin might finish behind all three of those Washington receivers in yardage this season. Mm. Uh, so that kind of puts it in perspective is that that Oregon has probably the best wide receiver that we've ever had. And Washington has three guys like that. And I actually feel like as an Oregon fan, Oregon's receiving core is as deep this year as I can ever remember it. Chris Hudson was our second best receiver last year. He can't get on the field this year because they brought in three transfers from Alabama, USC and Mm. bonus brother Tez from, from Troy. And they've all three elevated past Hudson on the depth depth chart. And I kind of feel bad for Chris Hudson, but uh, I feel great about Oregon's receiving core and Washington's receiving core is just in another strategy or a stratosphere. Uh, so, and part of, part of why they're having the success that they're having is because Penix can make the kind of throws that he can make, right? It's not an either or it's, it's, it's a both and. Yeah. So I think, I think there's, there's truth to everything you're saying. I think Oregon is, is probably a little more balanced. There's, they certainly have a more consistent rushing attack, even with the loss of, of Noah Whittington who went down in the Colorado game. Yeah. You know, they're elevating. He's out for a few weeks, isn't he? He is definitely going to be out for a while. Probably will be out for the Washington game, I would expect. So they're so they've got a sophomore in Jordan James who's going to get a lot more action now, Mm. averaging seven and a half yards a carry thus far. I think everybody's super excited to see him get to get more work. So Oregon's identity is still more in kind of that balance. I think an ideal game for Oregon is they're going to throw for 250 and run for 250. Mm-hmm. It seems like an ideal game for Washington is they're going to throw for 450 and run for 50, you know, <laughs> like that. It's right. Kind of, right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I think the last two weeks we've seen what the ideal is. And that is, well, you know, last week we threw for 400 and we ran for 150. The week before that, we threw for 500 and ran for almost 200. So, um, or, you know, I mean, something like that. It was over 700 yards offense. But, yeah, I think it's – you're saying it's 50-50, and I think for most Husky fans it would probably be two to one. Yeah. So, you know – in if, reality, it seems more like three to one or four to one for them most of the time, doesn't it? Like, Well, the last two weeks it's been – it's been about 400 yards passing and 140 to 150 yards rushing. Okay. So, and that's, I think if, 
if you are an Oregon fan, that should be concerning because um, it's not just a one-dimensional offense anymore. Yeah. And it's the last two weeks we've seen Dylan Johnson and um, Will Nixon averaging close to seven yards a rush. So that's that's a you know a wrinkle that wasn't there the first couple of weeks. Yeah, and that certainly makes them more more dynamic. Um, I did want to share a stat just kind of along the lines of what we're talking about because Warren, we've been so excited for this Pac-12 season. We've talked about it at length. Now it's finally here. We're starting to get into these ranked versus ranked matchups. Teams are starting to get whittled down out of you know contender status, and I. But the interesting thing, though, is the Pac-12 has totally lived up to all of the hype. Eight teams mm-hmm. in the top 25 as of last week. Three of them lost, but they still got five teams in the top 25 this week. So I wanted to give these stats for our, our readers just to kind of paint a picture of how impressive some of these teams have been. Washington currently leads the country in total offense, 593 yards per game. USC is second in the nation. Oregon is third in the nation. Washington State is sixth in the nation. So they've got four of the top six offenses. Uh, Washington has the best passing offense in the nation at 467 yards per game. Washington State with Cam Ward is second. USC with Caleb Williams is third. Colorado still, despite the loss, is in the top 10. Oregon is in the top 10 as well. And then if you go to scoring offense, where it's USC has the highest scoring offense in the country, 56 points a game. Then it's Oregon at 55 points a game. Washington is third. Wazoo is also in the top five. So it's just, I mean, I could go on. The numbers that these teams are putting up on the offensive side of the ball are all ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I come out of the Colorado game, I'm focusing especially on, gosh, those six deep passes where Oregon defenders were able to knock them down. Because if Oregon's going to have any chance of beating a Washington or a USC it's not going to be so much how much does their offense score as much as how many stops can their defense get? Can their defense force three punts? Can they force two turnovers in addition to giving up five touchdowns or something like mm-hmm. that? And and I think that's the question for all of these teams, right? Is that it's it's a matter of if you're going to play three of the best offenses in the country with three of the best quarterbacks in the country, that each have their own method of kind of carving teams up. It's who's got a defense that can de- that can just make a couple plays at key moments to kind of swing the momentum in in one of these games, and that's that's going to be the fascinating thing to watch with all of these teams going forward. Definitely, and you know we talked about this last week, but the real question I think is is this going to be a year where one or two teams rise to the top and can, you know, find that place in the upper echelon, or are we going to see the team kind of eat itself alive and or the, the pack eat itself alive? And, you know, like right now, I, I think on the one hand, you could be really encouraged and say, wow, we've got four teams in the top 10 right now, but they're seven, eight, nine, and 10. Yeah. Like, we don't have a team in the top six in the nation right now. And I think that's a sign of disrespect, to be honest. Like it's, it's great that we've got four teams in the top 10, but I think, you know, 
Washington, USC, and Oregon all have as much of a right to be maybe between two through six as Michigan, Texas, Ohio State, Florida State, and Penn State. But they're not getting that recognition because they are still, you know, the lowly pack. I think I would agree with you when it comes to Michigan and Penn State who have who have similarly not necessarily played elite competition. I think in in this I think it's hard for me to begrudge Texas who already has a win over Alabama, Ohio State who just scored a big win over Notre Dame, Florida State got a win over LSU. At least they have a marquee victory attached to their name which we're still kind of waiting for that. I mean really the only Pac-12 school that has that is Wisconsin, right? Like, right. I mean, or is Washington Washington state State over over Wisconsin, over Wisconsin and then over Oregon state and Colorado. Yeah. And uh, well, technically, so (laughs) Oregon beat Colorado, Colorado beat TCU. So there's a few other wins over, over ranked teams. Utah has that win over Florida. Um, But, you know, I, I have been on the record going into the season that I thought Washington and USC were the two most, most imposing teams. And just the way that the schedule is played out, we haven't we haven't seen them get tested by a great opponent yet. And I think if if Washington just kind of hammers Oregon, uh, I think you're going to see that ranking jump forward. If they win a close game, I think that ranking even is going to take a major a major jump. No, I agree. I mean, if assuming both teams come into their week ranked, uh, or I mean, undefeated whoever wins should be a top five team in the nation without yeah. question. Yeah. So, Hey, it's uh it's been a great episode, Mark. Thanks for uh, always weighing in and coming with the uh, informed opinions. Even if your top 10 lists are questionable at best. <laughs> hey, there's a reason why so often when we have conversations about sports, we use the term arguably uh-huh. because some of these things you just have to argue about them. So, Mark, you are arguably one of the greatest hosts in the history of the Dog and Duck Show, <laughs> and uh, we're uh, we're we're glad to have you. Yeah, oh, thank you, Warren. It's a, it's a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to vigorous debates about the top ten tight ends in the Pac-12 history. <laughs> yeah. As long as Mark Bruner makes his way somewhere on the list, we'll be good to go. No guarantees. Okay. Well, for all my dog fans out there, we'll uh, we'll get you with a big go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. All right, guys. We'll catch you next time.